the time has come to get some of this. In this corner with Brian Campbell is back. Yes, it's the MMA edition. Ready to pass your guard with another dose of that performance-enhancing audio. The Brian Campbell is the name that you hear. Aiming to please and impress with another power hour of combat sports talk. I'm not impressed by your performance. My tag team partner, Muhammad King Mo Lawal, is on the ring apron and ready for that hot tag to get us started as we recap the weekend that was in MMA, including Bellator 183 from San Jose and UFC Fight Night in Japan, as well as the latest news and much, much more. But before I do... Let me remind you to spread the word for the ITC on social media using the hashtag in this corner. And today, as always, if you hear something that you like, if you see something, say something. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, review. We want to see this show make even more strides, and you can play a big part in this journey. Also, check out our other offerings this week. From the ITC brand, as Rafe Bartholomew and I interview Gennady Golovkin trainer Abel Sanchez on the boxing show, reliving the recent super fight with Canelo Alvarez and pondering how a big money rematch might be different. And on the pro wrestling edition, WWE superstar Charlotte Flair drops by to talk Ronda Rousey and update the health of her father, the legendary Ric Flair, after a miraculous recovery from organ failure. Check out our archives as well from recent exclusive interviews with Roman Reigns and AJ Styles you do not want to miss. But with the business out of the way, it's time for MMA's best tag team to enter the ring. Hey, enter the cage. We are back again. Enjoy. Your boy BC and King Mo Muhammad Lawal, the Bellator light heavyweight, the the com the passionate combat sports fan and, and expert on all things. King Mo, we are back in business this week talking MMA and beyond. What's happening? What's going on with you in South Florida? Man, you know, right now just uh dealing with some rain, um just you know, watching some training, getting some some strength training when I can, you know, that's about it really. Well, King Mo, it was a busy weekend. You, you're you hitting me up on text. Busy weekend in MMA and boxing. I mean, even pro wrestling for anybody that, that checked out that disappointment of a No Mercy WWE card on Sunday night that had big-time potential. But we got a lot to get through in a very short time. And sort of a, a crowning highlight of the weekend from the MMA standpoint, King Mo, was that Bellator 183 card from San Jose. It was what Scott Coker likes to call what? The the tent pole cards, you know, the, the cards that... that those quarterly big cards that hold up the entire company. This card, pretty good one, top to bottom. And that main event, it was a lightweight battle. Patricky Pitbull Freer against Benson Henderson. They went the full five-round distance. Pitbull getting the split decision. Now, King Mo, very interesting fight in that neither guy had a ton of success offensively in what they were trying to do. Yeah, it, it, you know what? You're right. Um, it, this this fight really came down to um, who's more effective with their game plan, and who uh, I don't know who, who's the, the pressure fighter in a sense because not much really happened in that fight. Um, Benson tried to take downs. Um, um, Pitbull defended them. Pitbull landed, I think, landed the better strikes, but at the same time, Benson Henderson was a little busier, but he was also not the aggressor. Which to me, it was just kind of it could have been a draw. You know, depending on what you like, um, it could go either way. Really, when it comes down to it, everybody's scratching their head because no one really could understand what really went on in that fight. Yeah, difficult fight to score, like you mentioned. Like, Henderson was good with the kicks, but was not successful in trying to take Pitbull down. Pitbull was was the aggressor, like he always is, but didn't have, you know, the, the real demonstrative moments that would, that would necessarily, you know, guarantee a clean victory. But it was, in the end, what it ended up doing was sort of like a, a, a crossroads type of fight, because now you see Freer improving to four and one over his last five. He's surely making a move toward a title shot. And you have Henderson now, Really falling to one and four since his Bellator debut. Now this was a big sign for Bellator because at the time when Benson, former UFC champion, came over from the octagon, you know, still at the tail end of his prime. Now he's one and four. Two of those split decisions, right? The last fight to Michael Chandler, now to Pitbull. Two of those four fights, title fights. Tough spot at age 33 now for Henderson. You have to wonder where does he go from here? Well, let's not forget the fight he won, he was losing. He was versus Patricio, Patricio's brother, 
at 145, the 45 champion who bumped up to fight and was winning. Um, in my eyes, he won the first and second round, but then broke his leg when uh, um, Henderson checked his inside leg kick. So, very true. Uh, that was last August. That was a very weird fight. Like you mentioned, Benson did not look good in there. So that kind of is four fights in a row that – you know, not, it's a tough, I mean, it's a tough for, spot for any aging fighter. What I see from my eyes is Benson just isn't as, as explosive. The quick trigger fibers just aren't there like they used to be. The mind's still there. The game plan's still there, but he's now a, a, a fighter really without a home because that welterweight run didn't, didn't come through when he lost the title fight to Koreshkov. And now this lightweight run, you know, he's already been in a title shot. Now it's like, is he just a name now? This is a tough spot to try to reinvent yourself. Well, I don't think he necessarily needs to reinvent himself. Um, I talked to him, and he's still a good fighter. I talked to him in the past, and I know that he fought his last probably seven or eight fights besides this one, injured, no ACL. So he's now now he had, he had his ACL surgery. This is his first fight back from surgery. That's why if he watched the fight, he kind of fell a few times. You notice he's falling weird. Like it looked like he got hurt, but he didn't. He was falling. Like I don't feel I don't feel like he had um he has true confidence. In his, um, in his knee just yet. It's gonna take like another fight or two for that to happen. Trust me, I dealt with it. Yeah, very good point. And, and Henderson hadn't fought in 10 months because of that ACL surgery. So, you know, you love the imbalance where that there are, they, there can be a home for, for guys who have names who are at the end of their career to still be in fun fights, still be in marketable, the good ones. You know, it'd be interesting to see here if Henderson can bounce back. But Freer, like we mentioned, and this is Patricky, he is trending upward now. This is four wins in his last five. The only loss was in for the vacant title against Chandler, and that was one of the, one of the best one punch knockouts you'll see in all of MMA. It was June of 2016. He wins this fight. Instantly calls out the current lightweight champion, Brent Primus. He thinks that's the fight he wants. Now Scott Coger steps in and says, not so fast. We still have to run back Chandler Primus, the rematch from that fight at Bellator NYC, which was another kind of tricky ending where Chandler came up lame with the, with the, uh, with the ankle injury and the fight was stopped in that regard when, you know, could have been a no contest, but it, it, because the injury happened on a kick, that's the fight that I want to see. Primus Chandler too because I want to see if Primus is for real. Do you think now Patricky's just got to wait in line to see who's next? Yeah, just one fight. He has to wait just one fight. This next fight. If I was him, I'd wait. You know, um, heal up, improve, and and get the get the winner of uh, Chandler Primus. Um, that's his that's his best bet because he can take another fight and possibly win it. But if he gets injured, what if he takes another fight and loses? Then he's back. You know, he start all over again. You know, start that streak over again. So I feel like if I was him, I would wait. For my, for, wait for his title shot. No rest. A good point. I, King Mo, I love this Bellator lightweight division because these guys throw bombs. They're all sort of vulnerable in their own way. Like Michael Chandler sort of the best example of this. Like that guy just brings it. Very talented, but he can get hurt. I mean, he can get stopped. He'll put his heart out in there and every one of these fights just comes through in the entertainment value. Well, let's not just forget the, it's like this. It's not just the welterweight division. It's, I mean, the um, lightweight division. It's it's a whole it's all a Bellator because of the matchmaking. You know, look at look at that card. Look at just think about the card um that we saw on, on Saturday. Think about the finishes, think about the whole, from top to bottom. The weakest car the weakest fight in the card, let's be real, was the main event. Good point. Good point. You know, <laughs> what do you think is the difference in the in the in the in the mindset of the matchmaking at Bellator compared to other organizations? Well the thing about okay, Bellator actually is try is taking a step, not a step back, but switching the roles. Because remember when Bellator first started, they are like, hey, we're out to prove MMA can be run as a true sport. So we're going to have a season, and we're going to have like um, a, the tournament champion which is going to crown the season champion, and then we're going to have them fight for the belt. It's like a playoff system. So you automatically start in the playoff system, and the winner of the playoff system fought for the title. So people, people thought it was cool, but in the long run, people were like, you know what? First of all, we we can't get attached to these guys. You can't market them because remember there are fights like every week and every month, so we couldn't market the fighters. Two, there are matchups they wanted to see, mythical matchups they want to see that wouldn't always happen to turn because either a guy got upset or injuries or you know something happened. So you know now they're about you know Coker comes in it's like you know we're about to put on the we're we're about putting on the fights that make sense and that entertain the crowd. Now the UFC at one point was about hey we're a true sport. But then they went to the entertainment for, for um, they went the entertainment route and still trying to claim a true sport because it's like this: how many belt how many belts do they have? They have 
They have two at 185. They, they, they possibly have two at 155, maybe two at 145. <laughs> Good point. So let, let's, let, you know, it gets to the point where they, they've, they've kind of turned their back on what they're trying to do. They're, they're trying to claim that, hey, we're a true sport, but now it's, they're, they're true entertainment. It's not a sport no more. If the ticket as, as it is, Bellator, at least we could we admit that, you know, we're putting out, we're out there to entertain. The UFC is like, hey, we're here to show we're true, we're, 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 we're a true sport. But at the same time, Conor Greg hasn't defended any of his belts just yet. And he has, he, he's not made one, one title defense of either of the title he won. I mean, that's incredible, right? We're going back two years now. No, and then, and then you look at Bisping. Bisping, Bisping, actually, like, you know, let's be real, like, like the Whitaker, um, Romero fight should have been the contender title, contender fight. True. And then the winner of that fight should have fought for the belt, but instead they're like, you know what? We, we, we have plans. I think GSP versus Bisping will sound good. And then we can have an interim belt. So once the winner of the Bisping GSP fight will fight Rob Whitaker. Interesting. You you laid out the original Bellator plan under Bjorn Rebney, and it gave them an identity, but it didn't work for all the reasons you mentioned, right? It also didn't work because fighters were having to fight two to three times in a very short window, and you had injuries that that could delay the idea of these mini tournaments. So they go the entertainment route, and you've you've said on this podcast in the beginning, like MMA is entertainment. Let's not get it get it get it you know twisted here. And you're seeing the UFC in 2017. Follow for what I believe is the is almost the Bellator Entertainment blueprint. The blueprint because sales are down; they don't have the big stars to make these big matchups. So now they're sort of trying to cut and paste however they can to make fights seem more important. So Coker is onto something, and clearly it's working. This was a very entertaining card. What did you like best about the time you had with Coker under the Strike Force banner that made you want to stay on this side of the street? What well, the freedom, <clears throat> the respect. Because one thing you say is. Okay, granted, the weakest fight on the card was the main event. But did you ever hear Coker come out and bash it? Well, let that be a UFC event. You would come, you'd hear Dana White come out and be like, oh, I mean, these guys went out there lollygagging and playing grab butt. You know, <laughs> I mean, they didn't lay on the line. Like, we want guys that lay on the line and just go for broke. But then once you lose going for broke too many times, you get cut for going for broke. So what is it? Do you want guys to go out there and bang and entertain the crowd? Or do you want guys to go out there, bang, win, and entertain the crowd? Because, you know, if you if you throw out the game plans and you just have the guys go out there and entertain, then you should you don't expect to get the winner you want. That's that's a very good point. I'll never forget, you know, Dana White ripping Holly Holm for for taking that Misha Tate title fight, which she ended up losing in a classic, of course, right at UFC 196, March 2016, and saying no, she should have waited a year for Ronda to come back. Well, then he sort of contradicts himself when he's talking about any other fighter. So you make a good point altogether on the on the visions of the whole company. The co-main of this Bellator 183 card this weekend in San Jose, it brought the bombs we thought coming in. It just took a while to get there, and that's a welterweight bout between. Between top contenders Paul Semtex Daly and Lorenz Larkin. Larkin coming off the title loss to Douglas Lima at Madison Square Garden a couple months ago. Very entertaining fight. We know Bailey, or sorry, Daly, always looking to throw bombs, King Mo, but it took him two rounds of almost cautious, cautious jabbing and feeling out. I've never seen Paul Daly that calculated before he finally let his hands go. Well, I think that one, it's maturity. Two, he's dealing with a guy that is very tricky and quick. And you notice in the first round, he's being cautious, doing the, throwing the jab. And Lorenz Larkin's tricky moving. And Lorenz Larkin hit him with the right hand, backed him up, hit him with a few good shots, kick, you know, body kicks. Um, Lorenz Larkin was very active and very accurate. But at the same time, one problem that Lorenz Larkin has is that sometimes he hurts himself by going towards the cage, circling the cage. If he keep, if he keep every fight in the center of the cage, I think he'd probably be undefeated. Seriously. Interesting. If he sits off the cage, he beats everybody. But a lot of times he likes to use the cage as just like just a, um, maybe like a home base. He's comfortable being off, off the cage. And you notice Paul Daly started walking him down, started clinching him, throwing some knees. And he felt comfortable because he, he started landing. And the first round, I, I think Paul Daly realized, like, okay, I'm not landing. Second round, he's like, second round, I got to come with it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pressure him and, and try to keep the fight in the phone booth. And that's what he did. And it was a mature f- performance when you look at, you know, Daly just had the fight with Rory McDonald in his much-hyped Bellator debut, got submitted in the second round, really was a, you know, a technique gap there. Daly 
fought much more poise, and then when the opening came, like you mentioned, he attempted the spinning back fist that didn't land squarely on Larkin, but it it put Larkin in an awkward spot where it opened up a chance to, for Daly to come right back with that left hook, and that, that changed matters. That put Larkin on Queer Street. Daly jumped right in and finished the bout. Kind of a tough loss for Larkin, I mean, where he was sort of caught off guard by one wild move. And sometimes, King Mo, those wild moves, like when Chris Weidman tried it against Luke Rockhold in that title fight, or when Stefan Bonner tried it against Anderson Silva, you try a crazy move. I'm sorry, not Bonner. I I was referencing Chael Sonnen. It can get you caught. Or sometimes in this spot, it can throw off the the game plan of your opponent. I mean, interesting chance, but it worked out for Daly there. Yeah, you live by it, you die by the crazy move. Like this in wrestling, you live by the throw, you die by the throw. So if you go for a throw and you get it, you might pin him. You go for a throw, you miss it, you get pinned. It's like the crazy moves. You see guys going for the spinning back fist. Don Young Kim tried it against, um, against the Tyron Woodley, got countered, got knocked out. You know, you can only, you have to be calculated. And I think with Paul Daly, he threw it because he knew that, you know, um, it would make, it would force Lorenzo Arkin to either catch him or he forced him to reset and, and defend. The maneuver, the spinning back fist, because with a strong, one thing I learned from Kevin Jackson, he said, Mo, strong attacks can only be defended, not countered. So if you have a strong, stiff jab, you can only defend it. You can't counter that. You know, and the spinning back fist was strong and he went for the kill with that move. And what, what we see, we saw Lorenzo Larkin defend. That's it. He ducked down his hands up. And then after that, um, when, 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 uh, um, when, uh, um, Daly turned back around, he saw the left hook there and, I, for some, I think Daly must be left-handed. That, that his left hook comes out so quick and it's so powerful, and he has no tails. I think he's left-handed, but he fights as a righty. It has to be. Well, Daly's so fun to watch. Now, his only losses now are to Roy McDonald and Douglas Lima under the Bellator banner. We love him from back in the day for that right, that strike force brawl with Nick Diaz. I want to keep seeing Daly in fun fights. He's like the perfect Bellator fighter right now. Yeah, him versus listen, him versus MVP. Oh, Another we called thing. him out after. Now that is, talk about an all Brit trash talk war in the lead up. That'll be fantastic. It is. Like, the thing is, what, what gets me is like people don't realize how dangerous MVP really is. I had a chance to work out with him and uh, Derek Chisora in England, and I'm looking at this guy. I'm like, man, he's taller than me. We probably have the same reach. He has longer legs than me, and he's lighter than me by easily like twenty. 20, 25, 30 pounds maybe. And I'm like, this guy is going to be hard to beat. He moves unorthodox. He has a crazy rhythm, crazy range. Um, the person that's going to beat him is a person that's a grinder that can come forward and just take Good point. the chain that can take whatever he has to offer and can cut him off and just mirror him and keep his back on the cage. If- that's what, but yet, I've yet to see that guy. I thought Fernando Gonzalez is probably able to implement a game plan like that, and Fernando couldn't. Well, I mean, Gonzalez did, did well to attempt to expose Paige. I mean, there's people that are trying, because Paige is reckless at times because you have so much uber talent leaking out of you. He's also kind of reckless on social media. Remember after Ronda Rousey got knocked out by Amanda Nunez, you saw Paige putting out that video mocking her and dancing all over. I mean, this guy's reckless, which you find that a lot with these Brit fighters. They know how to market and sell themselves. And, man, that would be fireworks daily and Paige in that cage. Because I want to find out how good MVP really is. Uh, we'll find out soon. You know, and one thing, you, to, you live by the crazy style, you die by the crazy style. And, you know, um, MVP, he's gonna, like, when, he, when he fights that crazy style, he looks phenomenal. Now, and, when, he loses, when he loses by it, what will happen? You know what I'm saying? Like, will he have to change anything? Will he become more traditional in a sense? Who knows? You know, um, we, we didn't see um, Stephen Wonderboy change. So the only thing he changed is he added to his – he learned how to grapple. He learned how to defend takedowns. That's the way he changed. So if MVP – Say here to lose, and he can make adjustments on the fly and not not lose his confidence. He will be hard to beat. We've already seen grapple. We've already seen new takedowns. Let's see his takedown defense. If his takedown defense is solid, and he and he can keep the and he has a good output and good good gas tank. He will be hard to beat. Seriously. And if Bellator is looking for the kind of crossover marketing guys that can do, I don't want to say do a poor man's McGregor because McGregor is a marketer on his own level. But you now have guys like MVP. You have guys like Ireland's James Gallagher under the Bellator banner who can really sell and market themselves and get into say, hey, you know, I'm going to use social media and I'm going to say, check me out what I'm doing over here. Those are the type of fun fighters to get the crossover fans. So that's that that's fun. King, well, one more thing on the idea of a wild strike. Not to bring up old wounds, but you did fall victim, of course, to the spinning back fist from Emmanuel Newton back in a 2013 Bellator fight. Talk about 
fielding a punch like that? Why are those so dangerous? Well, those are so dangerous because you don't expect them. Um, they come at awkward times. There's something you can really train for because in practice, the spinning back fist is really frowned upon the throw because say say um, a guy comes forward, you can elbow him, you can break your forearm, you can actually hurt somebody, you can knock him out. And in training, you're not out there to knock out your training partners. You're out there to work with them. So um, with the Lorenzo Arcus spinning back fist, I didn't see it coming at all. He got me clean. You know, um, I, I saw. I thought he turned, went to turn his back to move away, and as he turned his back to me, he threw his man back fist. It, it was it was genius, you know. Um, but live by the crazy move, you die by the crazy move. Because when we rematched, he didn't come close to landing. And after he landed on me, he landed one other time on um on the um I forgot his name uh Joey Beltran. Yeah. And then after that, it was done for. Everyone was like, "All right, we saw it twice." That's good enough. <laughs> we know your finishing move. We're, we're, we're removing that option from your game plan. You know, we're looking out for it now. That, that's, that's interesting. King Mo, another fight on this card that popped me was it was good to see uber prospect Aaron Pico get that first victory. I mean, he was, they were calling him the most hyped prospect in MMA history ahead of his debut just a few months back in New York City at Madison Square Garden. Came in as a lightweight and we saw what happened, right? Lost in very short time, 24 seconds to Zach Freeman. It seems like they picked the wrong opponent. They picked a guy a little bit too skilled. Well, he moved down to featherweight and on Saturday night fought Justin Lin. First round knockout and the left hook that that took his soul was spectacular. What'd you like about seeing Pico second time around? Well, it was a modified upper hook, like a smash punch, like Donovan Ray's Reddick threw. But it was a counter, and it was so clean because when he threw it, he actually p- leaned, leaned forward on his left foot and pivoted just at the – you can see his foot turn. Um, Pico showed good poise. He showed uh, good technique, showed good range. But one thing I didn't like is he got hit a little too much. You saw, I saw him get hit with a few right hands and get backed up with a few right hands. But other than that, like, he showed good poise. Um, I wish that he would, you know, when uh, his opponent was on the cage, I wish he would pick his shots better because he flurried. But when he flurried, he really didn't throw any, he didn't let anything of significance. I was going to bring that up to you because I was starting to wonder if Lynn showed a chin – was Pico going to gas out? Because Kimo, he was throwing like 10, 12 punch flurries and wasn't caring if he was landing at all. Yeah, and that comes with um, maturity because I remember it happened to me before. I remember when I fought in Japan, I had a guy against the ropes and I flurried, but real, when, when I thought about it, like I, when I look back and see that, I'm like, I didn't throw anything of any significance. So like, I, I think next time when Pico um, is in the same situation, I think he'll pick his shots and maybe pick his shots and go for a takedown. Because in this situation, I saw him throw and it looked good, but I saw him squared up. And if the guy would have just ducked his head through a counter left hook, who knows what could happen? When you look at, think about this, when Fedor fought um, my boy um, Fabio Maldonado, Fabio, say against the cage, was was like covering up and then threw a short, clean left hook, counter left hook, and floored Fedor. Things like that. Those are the shots that you don't see coming. And when you're when you're just throwing wild and flaring wild, it's easy to get countered. But when you're picking your shots. You take your time and you're finding the openings so you'll see the counters coming. Very good breakdown on, on what it's like in there. By the way, your boy Fabio got straight up housed and robbed that night in in Russia. Come on, man. Yeah, he did, but luckily they overturned it. I feel like, I think, I believe they overturned it to a no contest or gave him the victory, but Fabio won that fight. We all know, um, Fedor is a legend, but Fedor, you know, I, he got a gift. I mean, Fedor, like, I want to keep seeing Fedor because he's fun, right? He's a legend. I kind of love the idea of two old guys getting in there, but he's washed. I, you don't ever want to say that out loud about a fighter because you respect what they're doing. But obviously he's shown you now, four or five years now, that he can get some soft wins in Russia, but he's not on this level yet. Hey, came in there against, uh, came in there in NYC and almost had a double knockout. So that, that was fun to see against Mitrione. But, you know, we'll see how Fedor can be matched moving forward. Still moves product, right? King Mo still sells tickets. Yeah, if you want, if you want to match him, match him against big country, Roy Nelson. Well, if- that's who we were going to mention next. Made, made his Bellator debut this Saturday against Javi Ayala. It was three rounds of, uh, of two big guys rolling around, but it was controlled wrestling. Were you impressed with Nelson in this spot? Was it a good enough victory in his debut? Well, it was a good victory for me. For, you know, I, I know Roy real well, and uh, I, I felt like we saw different, like you know, aspects of his game. For one, his ground game, because when's the last time you saw him actually do jujitsu? <laughs> Never. Yeah, long IFL days, right? It's been a long time. Long time, and then two, his setups, because I, I felt like his defense is better. Because usually he gets hit a lot cleaner. He did a better job of 
defense, defense, he did a better job of actually playing cat and mouse because usually Roy Nelson comes forward loading up big right hands. This time we saw him play cat and mouse and set up traps. His takedowns are better because he level changed this time. Usually he just tries to run straight through you. This time he level changed and, and, you know, I just, I saw good technical things that I haven't seen from him in a while. And, you know, he's with um, a coach, a guy that I work with named, um, Brother Farid Samad, Coach, Coach Samad is Olympic alternate behind David Reed, 96. He trains Ab Judah and uh, Debell Williamson and, um, and I mean, Samani Barrett. So he's been around for a while. So uh, um, he's a good boxing coach, worked with um, Mickey Bay, Bobby Lashley, worked with Rashad Evans, me, myself, and uh, quite, you know, Tyrone Spong. He's been in the game for a while. It's just that now he can just do from working with Roy. And nice. I think they make a good team together. And I feel like Roy, if I Roy, Roy should add Antonio McKee to the mix too, because something about Antonio McKee's fighters, they're in shape and they come to fight. Aaron Pico is now training with Antonio McKee, AJ McKee. You know, you see the guys there, Kimbo Slice Jr. Like you see them developing guys, and when they come to fight, you never see them gas. They always come to fight and they're in good shape. Well, well, you know, clearly Nelson can do that, but no one pulls off the the homeless kind of fat guy look and then brings it in the cage like Nelson. It's been that way his whole career. I've never seen a body type like that, but yet see a guy who has the motor and obviously has maybe the best chin we've ever seen in MMA history. Let's be honest here, right? Yeah, him and Mark Hunt, 1A, 1B, in a ring of that, you know, because Mark Hunt did get knocked out by Melvin Manhoff. Um, I was there in Japan. But everybody gets knocked off by Melvin Manhoff, right? I mean, the guy's sick power. <laughs> yeah, but you know, other than that, Roy got like you know guys like Roy and and, and Mark Hunt, you know they're gonna be around for a while. For, you know, granted they they train smart and uh, they don't take as much damage. Absolutely. Well, we got some some more headlines to run through. Friday night there was a semi interesting, not really UFC fight night Japan card from Saitama at the Super Arena, old school, right? The main event was kind of a mosh posh thrown together at the last minute. Yet Ovin St. Prue losing his original opponent, so they rush in Yushin Okami to sort of save the day. The problem is they're fighting at light heavyweight, right? Okami. Best work back in the day was really at welterweight. I know he's, he's did some time at middleweight, of course, but you know uh, you saw Shogun Hua pull out at the last minute. But what we got from OSP was a very interesting Von Flew choke in the first round. Hey, King Mo, you don't see that too often. Why do you not see that too often? Well, for, that's 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 OSP's second um, second Von Flew choke. But the thing is, you don't see too often because people start starting to realize, hey, don't grab the guy's head. <laughs> Don't grab his head. You know, if he's on top of you, don't grab his head. You need a frame, push your head away, make make space for your hips, go go back to guard, half guard, you know, or go back to go back to full or frame away and try to come to your feet. But instead, Okami just grabbed the head and then got Von Flew. You know what I'm saying? He got you can see him like he grabbed the head and then you can see his make a facial expression like okay, it's uncomfortable. Then you can see him like fight a little bit and all of a sudden he just went out. You know, good, good shout out to OSP for identifying that his opponent was out and uh, and saving him from, from you know taking any more damage you know than, than needed. You're right, back to back von flu chokes. I forgot about that last one he had there against Marcos Rogerio de Lima. That was just in April. OSP's always kind of feast or famine though, Kingmo. Right, like an incredible athlete, former college football player at Tennessee. Got up to the interim title level against John Jones can give you a highlight real knockout, but can also kind of be frustrating in some of his other biggest fights. Yeah, you know, but the part of that's because he didn't grow up in a combat sports background. Like guys that come from a, come from a combat sports background or martial art tend to be more consistent because they actually have experience with it. They know how to bounce back. You know, OSP came from a team sport, football, so usually. You're not the te- you're not held accountable for messing up. Usually, the team is, you know. Where in MMA, you're held accountable, so you have to figure out ways to bounce back. In football, you know, so you miss a tackle, and then the, then your field goal kicker misses a misses the game winning field goal. Guess what? They blame the kicker, Good but point. really you blame the team because that tackle that you missed could have actually made the you know made the field you know could have helped you know led to a different score, could have led to a touchdown or something else. You never know, but. OSPs come from a team sport to now learning each, like learning, learning jujitsu, learning wrestling, learning boxing, learning kickboxing, and learning a new style conditioning from scratch. Don't forget in football, it's all explosive. You know, it's all explosive. You know, a play lasts like five seconds. If that, then you get a little break. 
So you're saying he can get early wins in his career just by being I mean, he's a big boy, he's very explosive, like you mentioned, but that real maturity might not come until his mid late thirties, right? That real understanding of what he's doing? Yeah, I think I think now you start to see starting to understand it now. And on the on the fly. Because before, remember you see him go out throwing big bombs, body good body kick. He showed he could throw good bombs, they showed good body kicks, they showed calf slicer. They start showing more and more they used to learn takedown defense. They learn takedowns. Now he's doing the Von Flu. Then he's going to transition from the Von, von Flu maybe to a head and arm or maybe to a triangle. You, you never know. Like, you know, mounted triangle. Just as long as he's, as long as he's adding to his chains and, and keeping things fresh, he's going to keep on growing. The moment he stops adding new, um, new arsenal to his repertoire, then that's when, um, that's when he's going to fade. So if you see, he's already been, he's already, he's already playing, he's already trying new things, you know, and, uh, He's, you know, every time you see him, he's always doing something different. Counter punches when he fought, um, Shogun the first time. He counter punched Shogun the first time. You know, he showed, she showed offense going forward and backwards. You know, with Glover, he showed, um, you know, a good body kick, good chin, but Glover just, Glover had more experience than him. So you see the fights he's lost for the most part is due to inexperience in a sense. He's still learning. Hey, he did force John Jones to basically like play it safe and try to point fight him. I didn't think we'd ever see that happen. So. It, yeah, it, there's a real yeah. danger in there. But King Mo, the real fight that stood out on this card was the co-main event. Holy cow, a women's strawweight match that turned into an all-out war between top contenders, right? Two women that have lost to Joanna Young-Jacek at the highest level, but it was Jessica Andrade coming off that really hard-fought title loss where she was really dominated over five rounds against Young-Jacek but did not stop trying to win that fight. She outpoints Claudia Gadeja. I would have predicted it the other way, but Andrade was tough in this one. A lot of action. Gadelha had had some success striking early, but couldn't deal with the wrestling in the long run. What was your takeaway from this? Well, my takeaway is that I feel like maybe they gave Jessica a towel shot a little too soon. Yes. Maybe. I feel like maybe they should wait and let her, get, let her have more fights so her body could adjust to 115 because now her body looked like it adjusted to 115 well. Her gas tank looked good. She showed um, she showed pure like great power endurance that whole for 15 minutes she's out there throwing this girl around you know um picking her up slamming her don't mix in the mix up the shots she she i don't know just her pressure just was something else she went out there she she used a little bit of grinding she went out there explosive she went out there strong went out there composed i don't know her gas tanks was unreal for that fight and you don't see a lot of fighters Dropped down that drastically in weight. And she, you know, she came from Bantamweight where she was undersized, but still was successful. Drops down to 115, and now you have somebody who can throw bombs, who's aggressive on the ground, can really wrestle. It's an interesting point of did she get the title shot too soon? And and we don't know how long Young Jacek's going to hang around in this division because she's wanted to move up to 125 for a long time. And the idea of becoming a two-division champion now that they've opened up that division in the female class is going to be enticing for her. But to see Andrade maybe get a second chance, could that fight look any differently in your eyes? Well, I, you know what? It could look better or worse. You know, It just depends on Joe because Joanna is more confident after fighting her one time. And who knows? Maybe this, this, you know, um, she had the, you know, gave her a Mayweather lesson in a sense because you know you look at Canelo when he fought Mayweather. Canelo was, you know, inexperienced, and after he fought Mayweather, he took a, learned a lot of tricks, and it, his confidence skyrocketed. Now you see, um, you know, now you see, um, Jessica Andrade, she went five rounds with the champion. She comes back and looks like a whole different monster because you know sometimes when the monsters lose, they come back and they're not monsters no more. They're kind of like children. But she came back even more of a monster than the first, than the fight with the, the champion. You know, you saw her takedowns, big strong takedowns. You saw her defend the submissions. You saw her landing big bombs, coming forward. She didn't, she didn't take a deep, deep breath. She came forward. Her, her pace for this fight was actually faster than the pace for, um, versus, um, versus Joanna. But it was more, it was a faster controlled pace for this fight. Cause I think she knew I'm going to go out there, put pressure on Claudia and break her. And that's what she did. She is going to be interesting. It's tough when you have a division where one fighter is so dominant and it's the champion because it overshadows everybody else below them. But this division for a while has had some tough fighters in it from Carolina to Claudia. I mean, I love the women's strawweight division. You get really good fights. King Mo, let's go through some of the news cycle this week in MMA. Hey, good fight. Bellator has now booked welterweight championship January 20th from Los Angeles. Douglas Lima against Rory McDonald. 
Coker likes to talk about those tent poles. To me, this is a tent pole fight because, man, we want to see Rory get the title shot, of course. Maybe the biggest signing Bellator has ever had. But Lima is on some kind of run. The only losses in Bellator have been in title fights. They've been to Ben Askren and Andre Korshkov, which he has now run back and won back the, you know, won the title by redeeming it in the rematch. Lima at 29 is at the peak of his game. How good is this fight on paper? Uh, it's a great fight on paper. One thing Lima has shown is that, you know, people, people feel to realize it's not about the organization you come from. It's about your style, the fights you bring, and your game plan. And people thought that, people thought that Lorenzo Arcus had come through and just smash Lima. People thought Lorenzo Arcus had come through and smash daily, you know, and it didn't happen. People are under the impression that Rory's gonna come out there and smash Lima. <laughs> Let's see it happen. I, I'm under the impression that it's gonna be a tough fight for both guys. Um, you know, they're both confident, but, you know, what Rory seemed like he lost a little bit in his last few runs in, in the UFC, but I think the rest of the time off and the rest, you know, the time, the time off for healing and this rest and everything came, when he came back to Bellator, he was refocused and ready to go. So I think that you have a very confident Lima versus a refocused, um, Rory McDonald. That's a great point. And Lima's confidence. I mean, you saw it in, in how he stood in there against Larkin and really executed a good game plan. I mean, you know, he outpointed Paul Daly in London. The guy can do some things. A potential star on the rise, really, when you consider his age and you consider how much he's grown. Very good fight. King Mo, now, we got to talk some boxing. Because you and I, we went over our Golovkin tr- uh, Canelo scorecards last week. Our opinions, you, you, you kept it 100 as always how you saw the fight. You challenged me from this point of view. In such a big fight in boxing that crossed over to, to everywhere in sports, you said Canelo was doing more defensively than maybe a lot of people realize. He was doing more in disarming Golovkin. Finally got the chance to sit down. The HBO replay this Saturday, full on HD. No grainy internet streams here, King Mo. I went for the, for the big screen, blew this thing up and watched it. I scored it nine rounds to three the first time for Golovkin, but I always put that asterisk. Sometimes when you're watching from the floor in the arena, you're, you got the turnbuckle in your way. You got HBO's lighting grid, grid in your way. You're tweeting during the fight. Your fighters backs are to you. Sometimes you don't always get the better view. You get a better view of the punching power. You get a better view of which guy is controlling the the pace, but you don't always get a view of what's landing. I changed rounds three and six and scored them to Canelo and amended my score now. Seven to five, 115, 113, still for Gennady Golovkin. But King Mo, I did that under the guise of maybe I missed or undervalued some of the things Canelo was doing the first time around, and I think that's true. But I don't know... If I could give him any other rounds, any other benefit of the doubt to try to even force a draw. I know that's only one more round, but at 7-5, I was pretty firm on what I saw, which was the busier, more aggressive fighter who overall threw more, landed more, and controlled the pace in Golovkin. Well, it depends on, it depends on what you like because when it comes, he threw more, yeah, but he landed more jabs. If, if, if I were to tell you to close your eyes and, and tell me how many Big punches, you remember Canelo, Canelo or Triple G landing? I guarantee you remember more of Canelo's punches. Yeah, absolutely. It. I mean, that, that right hand in round nine, that, that would have knocked out anybody. I found it really interesting in the rewatch. Like I said, gave three and six, thought Canelo had, had better moments, landed cleaner shots. But we talked about round 10 last week as a swing round. I thought, I'm sorry, round seven last week as a swing round. I thought round 10 was a much bigger swing round because Canelo landed huge shots in the first 30 seconds. Came out yeah. flurrying, landed three really clean shots, but King Mo didn't do anything literally for the next two minutes and 15 seconds. It was Golovkin walking him down. It was Golovkin landing, not bombs, but hitting him with stiff jabs, backing him up, snapping his head back twice. To me, that's really hard to give that round to Canelo, and that might be a microcosm of the scoring debate overall in the whole fight. Yeah, because the thing is that, you know, you have to also score defense as well. But people, people don't score defense. Remember, remember the the legend of Willie Pep. Willie Pep went around without throwing a punch. <laughs> yes. How else can you do that? Went around by not throwing punches unless you score defense. You know. So sometimes, like you, you have to score defense in a certain way. You know. But um, when it comes down to it, it depends on what you prefer. Now the fight was a lot closer because I, I had guys tell me, oh, I had it one eighteen, one of uh, one, you know, one twenty, one oh eight. You know, or, you know, um, Triple G. And I'm like, how? I know people that gave Triple G every round, you know, but, um, 
I think the fight was closer than what it is, closer than what people think, what people thought. I think that maybe um they should run it back. Not think maybe they should run it back in in May. They should you know? do it in May. You know what they shouldn't do is Canelo try to take a a, a big payday in between, like a Cotto rematch or some kind of situation, and extend the rematch of this fight till next year. When by the way. Triple G, another year older, 36. They should do it soon. And here's my theory about the rematch, King Mo. Watch this fight really closely. I saw Golovkin. He actually came out a little bit tighter than I've ever seen him. There was, there was almost like nerves in his face. Normally he's stone-faced. I saw a little bit of nerves. Took him three rounds to really get going. I think, though, that he took Canelo's best shots was a, fought a little bit too conservatively, meaning there were stretches in the mid-rounds where Canelo looked like he was fading. Triple G didn't empty the tank like he had in the past and try to get a guy out of there. I think K- Triple G showed too much respect in the first fight for Canelo's power. And guess what happened in rounds 9 and 10? Triple G ate Canelo's best shots and kept coming forward. So what that says to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Canelo fought as good as he could fight against Triple G. Triple G, though did not fight as good as he could fight against Canelo, was maybe a little bit too tight, a little bit too timid. If they run it back, and if Golovkin just says, look, I've already taken this guy's best punch. I'm coming forward. I'm going to get a little bit more reckless and loose than I'm used to, and I can stop this guy in the mid-rounds. Am I crazy? Well, not really, but at the same time, you have to realize this, right? Um, he can be more reckless, but the body shots, the reason why he wasn't, because he was worried about Canelo's sharpness with his counterpunches. He didn't want to get counterpunched. Also, Canelo's body shots. If you if you if you pay close attention to middle to middle to late rounds, when Canelo was landing the body shots, you can see Triple G kind of reacting because he'd freeze. He would freeze up. But I think that personally, me, I think Triple G. If I was Triple G, I would I would fight with more pressure, use a jab more, go to the body, and I would hope and cross my fingers that Canelo is focusing on cardio because if he's focusing purely on cardio, he could overtrain and fade even more. If you look at Kovalev. When Kovalev fought Ward, what did he do? I'm going to come back and focus on cardio. He brought in a Russian strength coach. And what happened? He still faded. Great point. Um, Great point. It, yeah. So it, it, it's going to come down to Canelo. Canelo's body type is very explosive. It's come down to him being able to relax. And if he wants to save energy, he can't fight off the ropes and move around much. He has to fight in the center of the ring and hold and, and spin him because he did most of his best work in the center of the ring. But he did he did okay he did okay work on the ropes, but at the same time he let um um Triple G get off on him and, and land good shots on the ropes. He was conserving energy, it seemed to go the full twelve. I think the only thing Canelo can do to improve is you know, improve the cardio a little bit, but also throw more punches so you don't leave any doubt in these close rounds. We did have Abel Sanchez, the great trainer of Golovkin on our boxing in this corner show this week. He basically said to me, like, you know, Golovkin wasn't didn't look old in that fight. They didn't think Canelo was going to be that good defensively. Like he straight up said they had no idea from watching, let's say, the Mayweather fight four years ago, that Canelo was going to be able to sidestep and completely take Golovkin's right hand out of the mix. I thought that was a little bit surprising that they essentially underestimated Canelo that much. And you have to agree, Alvarez made a leap in this fight. He showed you things you hadn't seen before. But he basically said, look, I would have liked Golovkin to be more aggressive. But what can he do in that spot when Canelo was showing you things defensively that they didn't even think was possible from him? Well, I, you know what? I'm going to be real with you. I think that's just the dumbest. Like, you're a coach. Okay, for instance, when he had Sullivan Barrera, right? Sullivan fought Ward. The game plan for Sullivan versus Ward was, was to knock Ward out. Or knock out a master boxer who has good defense instead of, like, trying to break him down, then go for the knockout. If you watch Sullivan Barrera's um, fight versus um, – Versus Ward, he had no game plan. No. Marat Gasayev, Marat is a cruiserweight champion. He's a big puncher. He fights with no true game plan. He's tr- his goal is just to land big shots and break you down. Triple G doesn't fight with much of a game plan. He fights behind a good jab and tries to break you down with shots and tries to bully you. So if you look at most of Sullivan, uh, most of uh, Abel Sanchez's fighters, they all fit the same mold. They try to go out there and bully you and and and, and break you down, break you down or, or knock you out. You know, um. To think that Canelo's not capable of showing defense. Do you not watch the Amir Khan fight? Granted, Amir Khan was landing shots, but nothing clean. Uh, Canelo's been showing good defense ever since the Mayweather fight. Ever ever since the Mayweather fight ended, you can see him in the shoulder roll. You can see him in the pull counter. You can see him counter punching and mixing. I, don't, I, just, don't, I just don't get it. I, you know, I, maybe he just didn't respect him. And maybe he looked back at the old sparring and was like, you know what? Canelo's the same fighter of eight years ago. 
than he is now. So, you know, let's go out there and try to knock him out. I think that's a fair take. I think they, that did expose something in, in, like, how could you underestimate a guy on this level at that point? And also, you made a great point. This is a good criticism of Golovkin in both the close Jacobs win and now this close fight with Canelo, that there really wasn't a plan B. There wasn't an adjustment. At this level, right, Floyd, Andre Ward are the best examples. You need to have plans B, C, D, and E. You need to be able to make adjustments. Golovkin wasn't able to. Sometimes that jab is enough, but we didn't see any wrinkles. We didn't see any counterpunching. We didn't see him going to the body. So those are certainly things that can be approved upon. But sometimes these trainers, these high-level guys, King Mo, like a Virgil Hunter with Andre Ward, like a Abel Sanchez, they have real big-time success with one guy, and then they try to almost use that same blueprint on lesser fighters, and it doesn't work. Yeah, that, and that's the truth. Like, you know, um, not everybody fights the same. Not, now you're starting to see a lot of trainers use a cookie-cutter program where they get fighters that have a certain build. Like Marak Asayev, look at Marak Asayev and you look at Triple G. Only thing difference is Marak Asayev is more of an explosive puncher. You know what I'm saying? They're both, they're both like, you know, Eastern European. They both walk you down. They both are big punchers. It's just the only thing that's different is that Marak Asayev has better one-punch power. And that's it. And they both fight the same, come forward, walk you down in your face. But no defense. No defense at all. Interesting, interesting way to look at it for sure. Uh, King Mo, loosely related to boxing, because it is, his former UFC heavyweight title contender Gabriel Gonzaga is going to make his pro boxing debut in October. Interesting here. Just a four-round bout off TV in Worcester, Mass. No bright lights of the Mayweather-McGregor stage. Obviously not the same star power. But he says he's not doing it for the money or publicity. He just wants to try it. He's been wanting to try it for a while. Your old foe, Rampage Jackson, is now saying, you know, I think I want a, a boxing match, right? Jose Aldo saying that, too. Is there going to be a short window of time where people can get fired up to see more MMA guys jump in the boxing ring for these one-offs? I mean, because I got to be honest, I'd be pretty pumped to see how it looks. I mean, we've joked on this podcast, you know, what would Connor versus Nate three look like in a boxing ring? I mean, is this going to, are we, are we on the road to this trend or is this just one off one guy wanted to try something? I, I think, I don't know. I think it's one off one guy want to try something because the thing is, like, you know, like for instance, say, say Quentin or Gonzaga, you know, they, they can have success, but what happens when they try to fight for the NABF or NABO title, a regional title? Then they're going to be facing killers like Joey DeWaco, Amir Mansoor. Yes, you know, those, those, type, those, are, those journeyman guys on the boxing level who are no joke. Yeah, or, or, or not just journeyman, guys that are, are at that level looking to you know break to the world championship stage. Because they're guys that are on the bubble just right there. They need two or three more fights before they can fight for a belt. And what happens if guys like Gonzaga or or Quentin Jackson end up facing guys like that. It's not gonna be pretty. Has King Mo ever considered the same thing, right? You're in you're at the in this in the second chapter of your MMA career. Did have you ever come close to getting that itch where you say, you know what, I want to try this. It doesn't need to be a big giant tent pole event. I could just take a four rounder in Vegas. I mean is this anything you've ever really considered? Yeah, I've thought about it quite a few times, like years ago, but now but what happened was I sparred with some guys that beat me up. And I realized, you know, I could be up bums, but is it worth it? You know, I might as well just go ahead and be a spawn partner and improve my skills because I know that I'm not going to do MMA and not try to become a champion. I mean, not MMA, but boxing and not try to become a champion. I can do it for fun, but at the same time, what happens if you end up facing a killer for real? And it's happened. Like, my, like there's a guy I used to wrestle with named uh, Jeremiah Constant. He used to box here and there. He did MMA. His second MMA fight was Cain Velasquez. So he's like, no, my box was well, I think his first or second boxing match was Areola, and he got smashed. Ooh. Yeah. A, a, a young Areola who was a killer back then. So, like, my fear is like, I go out there and I have knock out four wins, and all of a sudden I get a guy that has a plain name, and I underestimate him. I go out there and get destroyed. I'm not trying to get destroyed. I'm trying to get beat. You know, I, I'm okay with getting beat, but getting destroyed in the boxing ring is a whole different experience. What's because – you know, guy, you have a, you know, knowing me, I'm gonna try to stand up. I get dropped. I'm gonna try to stand up, and beat the ten eight count, and then from there, I'll be concussed, wobbly on bad legs, and I'll get destroyed again by somebody with the, that that knows what they're doing. Hey, you show a lot of respect for the sport there. I can respect that. You know, you're like, it's, it's, it's not that easy to just jump to the other side. And certainly you've sparred with a lot of big names. Hey, King Mo, I was on uh, Instagram on my boy Ahmed El Biali, the unbeaten light heavyweight contender out of Miami. I saw it look like a sparring photo of the two of you. You put in some work with him? Yeah, yeah. Things, I can, I can spar, but I just can't grapple or do jiu jitsu. So I, I was, I went down to Miami 
and I spar with him because I've seen him fight a few times. He's signed with Al Heyman. I've seen him fight on the on PBC. Actually, he's on the card with the Amir Montour versus Gerald Washington. I saw him fight on that card, I believe. And uh, I'm a big fan of his. He has some power. 16-0 with 16 knockouts. Devastating, man. He's gonna, he could punch. And I spar with him, gave him some work. We went about two or three rounds. And I spar with this Cuban named Kasiba. He's a former Junior Olympic champion. Um, he's a solid, solid guy. You know, um, solid fighter. He, he played played with both of us in the ring. So, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a good fan of this guy, LBL. I think he can do some things. He's got a got a marketable backstory. Educated guy. You know, Egyptian blood. It'd be interesting. What I always tell him though, when I see him, you need a nickname. How about the Egyptian magician? He says, No way, no way. That's not good. That's not good. I like it. I, I like it because he can make his foe disappear with that one punch. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Uh, a couple more bits here, King Mo, before we leave here. Uh, Ronda Rousey, Coach Edmund Tarverdi, and I don't know what you think about him, but he's always running his mouth. He went on MMA fighting last week and thinks Ronda should come back for one more in the cage. And you know who should be against Chris Cyborg Justino because he still thinks Cyborg's too slow and Ronda would win. Well, they brought that news to Cyborg. She's always on in, on the internet. She she responds instantly thinks it's crazy that's not the fight she's chasing anymore the, the time has passed she basically was like you want to make this happen Edmund let's do this Rousey versus Cyborg in a WWE ring uh what's what's Edmund's deal here is he I mean you know what are you kidding me I think maybe he's missing the spotlight or maybe he needs money or maybe he really believes it who knows because there are people out there that believe a bunch of weird stuff there are guys that out there that believe the earth is flat so he can believe what he wants if he feels like Ronald can win then good but Rhonda seems like she's on a different path right now. Let her enjoy her life. She's got married. You know, if she wants to fight, she'll come back. But I feel like to me, I just think as a coach, you know, it'd be it's kinda of weird for him to bring that matchup up for no reason out the blue. Well, let, we, if, if 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 anyone's gonna bring up a matchup, if anyone's gonna go out there, let the fighter bring the matchup up because she she Rhonda is the excellent one that's gonna go out there and risk everything. So I feel like it's kinda of weird for him to bring the fight up when he has nothing to really lose. You know, it's Ronda has everything to lose. All he has to do is gain is a paycheck. So I feel like maybe he's a you know a little out of line for that. And he's got well documented financial problems in the past, so you never know about that. But you know, very much all all the signs are pointing to a Ronda. Yes, going to WWE. By the way, on the In This Corner Wrestling podcast this week coming out on Wednesday, we talked to Charlotte Flair. I brought it right to her. I said, you know, if this happens and it looks like it will, your dream has been to main event a WrestleMania, become the first female to do so. Would would a Ronda Rousey Charlotte Flair match be the kind of opponent, the kind of match that could get you to that dream? She paused. And she said, yeah, yeah, it is. King Mo, you're a wrestling fan too. Uh, women eventually will cross over, you know, and, and break that uh, that wall down and become a WrestleMania main event match. Is that the type of match that can do it? Uh, maybe. It just depends because you have to realize, like, what's brought, who's Brock Lesnar going to face? Who is Roman Reigns going to face? Is the Undertaker coming back? Is Cena really done? What's Shinsuke Nakamura doing? So you have to take out consideration. So if, 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 if you want to main, if you want to headline the main event, then you should have, a four-way, a fatal four-way with, with with Charlotte Flair. Yes. Um, with uh, um Becky Lynch, Bailey, Sasha Banks, right? Oh, that was you know Asuka, Asuka. Yes, she's the she is she's going to change everything, King Mo. If you watched her in NXT, she's a beast. The Amber, I think it's Amber Moon. Amber Moon, yep. Yep. And then then you have Cyborg. You know, actually, have like a, a battle royal. Have Cyborg in it. Have the Four horsewomen have like a ba- a big battle royal and like you know something something crazy out there. We have a bunch of a bunch of women out there just throwing just throwing bombs and slamming each other. You have it big inc- include everybody. Make it a crossover event where you have cyborg. You have the four horsewomen, four horsewomen with uh, um with Ronda. You have the the WWE divas because then it could be like it could be it could be like the divas versus versus the four horsewomen and then cyborg picks the side to team t- up with. Maybe she teams up with the four horsewomen. Maybe she teams up with the divas. But they just keep it interesting in, in that in that um in that aspect where you have like a um like a kind of like remember remember the um the um DOA versus the um versus uh, the Nation of Domination. Oh yeah. Versus Savio Vega and the, um I forgot the um. He brought all his guys from Puerto Rico together. He got what did he get kicked out of the or he left the Nation of Domination, formed his own crew. They should have something, something a storyline like that in a sense, you know, where it involves Cyborg and she has, she jumps in and it just to make it just involve everybody, make it make it chaos because people will watch that. 
the thing is about like uh, like eventually we we, we want to see women's wrestling continue this movement this revolution where it's taken seriously right it's not just bra and panties like they're you're allowing them to wrestle like you know we've seen some great matches in NXT the past few years if you're gonna break glass and finally have a women's main event though it's got to be the right one at the right time and and if it was something like a Charlotte versus Rousey Rousey would have to have pre-established herself as a real wrestler who can keep up and you know can give you a 20 minute match and there would have to be a juicy juicy storyline you wouldn't want to see King Mo them them try something like this too early just to say they've done it right especially like you're mentioning who's Brock wrestling who's Roman Reigns wrestling who's Cena wrestling yeah I I, I really think when it comes down to it um they should they should actually build this up for maybe give it give it a two-year build-up have it have it be a two-year build-up maybe have like a tournament of some sort where like you know have a tournament have give a good build up and have Ronda win the tournament and have Cyborg you know win the tournament somehow where they have Ronda for Cyborg as the main event with Charlotte, Charlotte Flair as the guest referee or something <laughs> look at you booking the damn territory King Mo I like it on the way out here a, a pretty good UFC fight I just saw was announced UFC fight night Norfolk November 11th lightweights Dustin Poirier and Anthony Pettis that's fireworks right that's straight up fireworks yeah it's fireworks um it's 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 you got you got a finesse fighter versus a, a blue collar worker in a sense. So it's gonna it's definitely all his fireworks. You have a guy that's very both two guys that are very offensive. One's very offensively dynamic, and the other one's just a hard nose, in your face, throwing bombs, good kicks, well rounded fighter. I feel like Dustin Poirier is more well rounded fighter, but um. Pettis is more dynamic with his offense. Absolutely. I mean, both fighters can really use a win. I like the crap out of that fight. I think it's going to be really fun. Finally, King Mo, we, we talk boxing a lot on here. You're, you're entrenched in it. You're a super fan. You love it like me. Andre Ward walks away on his own terms, age 33, 32-0. He never tried to be somebody else's like fighter, right? It was always on his terms in a lot of ways, but you look at that resume. Damn, it's good. How do you sort of encapsulate his legacy and how we'll remember him, considering just 32 fights, walking away on top with his, you know, with his, with his, with his faculties intact, a lot of money in the bank. I think it'll take about six, seven years. People go back and be like, you know what? He was a great fighter. Because right now, people he's underappreciated, but it's it's always it always takes time for people to get their just dues. And I think that he's gonna be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, he should be. I think he will be. And I think that. In about seven years, people are going to look back and be like, you know what? This guy was great. He was excellent. He was great. Olympic champion. Beat everybody they put in front of him. You know, um, great role model. You know, well, well spoken. Good, um, good, uh, good with the commentation, commentary, commentary. Um, I feel like people are going to look back and be like, you know what? We should appreciate him more while he was still. Um, yeah, beat. I had so I, I that was my same theory that it's going to be like a fine wine thing. Over time, his legacy will gain with age, and the reason why. He's not being like applauded as much on the way out is because like, you know, there's always been this weird relationship between him and the media because he never tried to bend to give them the, the kind of quotes that they wanted or to fight the, the guys that, you know, they wanted at the right time. Like he wasn't afraid to go to court with his promoter for two years to get the, the control that he wanted. Wasn't afraid to take extra tune up bouts. But when all said and done, he beat prime Kessler. He beat prime, prime Carl Frotch, right? He knocked out, uh, Chad Dawson, who was a division champion above him, he's got two wins over an unbeaten prime pound for pound Sergey Kovalev. It's gonna be gonna be hard to do anything but give him a lot of respect. One of the true best of this era, you know, this was Floyd's era, but Ward's right there with Manny for that second spot in my eyes. And the thing is, when people one thing people will miss, we're not miss, but won't, won't like won't actually comprehend is that this guy, he was a good guy. He wasn't a trash talker. He wasn't in your face. He was a good guy. Wasn't flashy. He was a good guy, a good man. And you know what? In a sense, if he was a bad, if he was, if he talked trash, he was a bad guy. He probably, he probably be more, you know, more famous. Probably got bigger paydays. But he played it. He, he played. He did everything his way. He was a good guy, strong Christian, a man of values, and never strayed from his values. You have to respect that. Yeah, yeah, great family man now, and now he's, like we said, on his own terms, was so adaptable in the ring, could fight any style. Really, you know, really excited to see him to walk away when he wants to, because it's so rare that you see that in, in any of the combat sports, if we're really being honest. This is a hurt, the hurt game, this is a brutal, brutal way to make a living, King Mo, but he, he walked away, he beat the game, he's one of the rare guys that beat the game. You just don't see that too often. Yep, yeah, to him, Joe Kazagi, Floyd Mayweather, some of the few. 
Very, very true. King Mo, that'll wrap for this week, man. I had a lot more I wanted to talk about, but the clock just runs out because we can keep going on this. Follow me on social media at B Campbell CBS. Follow King Mo on both Twitter or Instagram at King Mo FH. King Mo, we like to give the fans two words on the way out. What do you got for them this week? <laughs> we out. <laughs>